Well, good morning. We're going to be taking a little break from our time in the book of Romans uh, and spending this weekend next on other subjects. Uh, We've looked a lot at concepts of law and all those sorts of things that can uh, sort of bind us down in the book of Romans. Well, we're going to take a left in the book of Romans and go all the way back to the beginning, to the book of Genesis, and take a look particularly at chapters 2 and 3. If you want to go ahead and go to Genesis 2, 16 and 17, that will be sort of a home base for us. For we're going to take a look at the very first command that God ever gave a human being. And I hope find refreshment in that endeavor. It's a beautiful little passage that's long intrigued me, and I love the opportunity this morning to be able to speak of it. But Genesis 2, 16 and 17 is oft overlooked in the grandeur of chapter 1 and all the things going on there. I love Genesis 2, and I want us to see the, uh, the beauty of this little command spoken first to Adam, by the way, prior to Eve's formation, uh, and learn some things about the Lord. In fact, I think there are three questions that we can ask of this passage in our time together today as we look at the very first command. What can we learn about the lawgiver? From the laws that he gives. It makes sense that the values uh, found in the lawgiver are also espoused in the laws he gives. Think of that question as we take a look at Genesis 2 16 and 17. Also, his character, his characteristics. We can learn about the character of God based on what he values, what he commands, what he says we can do and what we cannot do. We can learn about him from that end. And lastly, and I think very beautifully in this little passage, we can ask the question, are there patterns in the laws that he reveals? And I think in this first command, there's a beautiful pattern of provision, prohibition, and penalty that you'll see found throughout the rest of the scripture. It's it's as if God is giving us a preview of how he thinks and how he gives law in his very first command issued to a human being found in this particular chapter. Now, Genesis 1 and 2, they're strange dance partners, and we need to make sure we see the relationship between these chapters, because at first we're simply going to think, like almost all chapters in the Bible, but particularly true in the book of Genesis, that a linear chronology is is upheld, that the events in chapter 8 happen after the events in chapter 7, which happen after the events in chapter 6, but that's not always the case. For example, in Genesis 10, the table of nations, that's actually a description of what happened after the events in chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel. And in Genesis chapter 2, we have the opposite. Genesis 2 actually happens before some of the things recorded in Genesis 1, particularly God's commands to Adam and Eve, because God is simply going to be giving a command only to Adam in Genesis 2, 16 and 17. So we have to insert that back before the other commands to fill the earth, to subdue it, things of that nature. And thus it qualifies for his first command. Uh, To continue this relationship, I I, I would want to argue that that Genesis 1, and I'm going to define Genesis 1, I'm going to stretch the chapter break just a bit and I'll explain why. I want to focus on Genesis 1 and, 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 and Put for your consideration that God is giving us a panorama of all seven days, six days of creation, which typically fills up what we would call chapter one, but allow those next three verses of chapter two to be a part of that. For the seventh day, the Sabbath, is described in that in those three verses. 
So I'm arguing that God has a panoramic view of all seven days, six of them creative, one of them cessation or rest. There's a very strong structural marker in chapter 2, verse 4. It comes across in our Bibles as this is the record of, this is the generation of, these are the accounts of. That, that, that powerful marker is found 10 times in the book of Genesis and will serve you well if you divide the book that way. So God gives us this panoramic view, these activities of uh, the first three days of forming the earth and all of its shape and then filling the earth in days four, five, and six. He gives us the birds of the air, the, the fish of the sea. And then on day six, he begins to give us the earth creatures. And he gives us the cattle and, and the, what the Bible calls the creepers, those that stay on the uh, slither on the earth, if you will. And then finally, the beast of the fields, the, the mammals that stay upon the planet. And then after that, and only after that, you and me are made. It's as if God has resourced the whole planet for people. And it's exactly what's going on in the book of Genesis. And Genesis 2 helps us see that quite beautifully. For Genesis 2 is going to be a little flashback, a closer look, if you will. Found in verses 4 through 25, it's going to focus and take a snapshot just of the latter portion of the sixth day in which male and female was created. All the other creatures have been uh, placed before him. And Adam then, uh, with his wife later, will begin to rule over them. But the importance of this little section is to let us see the unique nature of God primarily dealing with Adam. And then toward the end of the chapter, Eve being formed from his side. And the wonder of what that thing the Bible calls one flesh as they are together in in their prospect and duty of keeping the commands of God. Just to further make sure we see in chapter 1, Adam Adam and Eve are commanded as a couple. The pronouns are plural. The verbs are plural. But in Genesis chapter 2, the commands are singular because they are to Adam only. The command that we're going to see, the first command, was given to Adam prior to Eve's formation. The creation of Adam and Eve is sort of um, lumped together, if you will, in Genesis 1. It's assumed it doesn't delineate the order, but Genesis 2 does. It's that closer look, a little mini flashback of first of Adam and then Eve. Uh, Brian had told us that there were some openings to preach, and and I said, I I would love to preach on this day, and I would like to speak on this subject. And I knew this two or three weeks ago, and I I was watching TV Um, you know, Discovery Channel, some kind of a deal with old rocks and stuff. And it was about the the, uh, Grand Canyon. And I said, well, this is interesting. I'm going to watch this. And and the premise was, it was a a group of Native Americans that had lived in the Grand Canyon thousands of years ago. And they lived on the sheer cliffs, on on the sheer face of the North Rim. In other words, they didn't live on top. They didn't live down where the river is. They didn't live on the beach. They lived in caves that were inside the the rim. In fact, in some cases, you couldn't even figure out how they got to their cave. In some cases, there's been discovery of some narrow traverses that go up and others there's not. And it's a fascinating deal. But inside the cave, there's there's pictures, there's implements. People live there. And I was was thinking about that when I was watching that that night. That's Genesis 1 and 2, how it might come together. In other words, how would I depict that story of not only the Native Americans and how might that fit with Genesis. Well, I called my good friend Steven Spielberg and I said, Steve, how would we do this if we had to make a video of this? And he says, let's get some, some helicopters and some good cameras and we're going to come in swooping 
off the, off the plains. And then when we get to the Grand Canyon, we're going to stop and we're going to go wide angle and we're going to see, let our audience see the full breadth of that Canyon, how far it is across and how deep it is and how far the river goes that way and how far it goes that way. And we're going to begin to let them see the North face of that Northern rim. And, and yeah, there might be a black dot over here and a black dot over there, but it'll just look natural. But until we begin to focus in, as we get a little more close to one particular cave that we want to focus upon, the audience is going to reveal, it's going to be revealed to the audience that that's not natural. That that's man-made. That opening is too perfect. And then we're going to allow them to see maybe a fire flicker in the back of that cave and, and some shadow forms. And we'll get a little closer in that helicopter. We're going to say, that's a, that's a mom and that's a kid. And that's a, that's a dad, that's a dog, and that's a grandparent, and that's an older guy there. It's a family living inside the cave. Wide view to narrow. Genesis 1 wide, Genesis 2 narrow. As Genesis 2 is this little closer look, this little mini flashback of what's going on in that well-known first chapter. Now, what happens is God begins to work on Adam and really sets up the first command that he's going to give in these unusual verses in chapter two, verses seven through 15. I've, I've longed uh, to know uh, why God would spend so much time describing this land, this thing that we call the Garden of Eden, until it sort of clicked for me as I was preparing for this, that God wants to spend an inordinate amount of words through Moses to describe the vastness and the lavishness of what we would call the Garden of Eden. And he wastes no, uh, no stroke about it. He spends all sorts of words on it. Notice what he does. He forms man from the dust of the ground and breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. Man becomes a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden. In Hebrew, it just means a cultivated area. And size is not the nature of the word. It could be something small. It could be something large. Context will determine the size of it. We're going to investigate that idea of how big is the garden? He plants this garden. Notice God taking uh, the, the, the first steps. He plants this garden in Eden, placed the man whom he had formed. And then the Lord God causes all these trees to grow. Notice every tree, all sorts of trees uh, that are pleasing to the sight and good for food. All sorts of fruit trees, I would take it. All sorts of vegetable plants, I would take it. They're beautiful and also good for you. The tree of life is in uh, the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, I've never seen a garden that has a river flowing in it, okay? So I want you to come out of your backyard and that idea of what a garden is to you and me and expand that to hundreds, if not thousands of acres of an orchard over which Adam will be placed and commanded to work. Okay, that will set up his need for a helper later because the task is very large. But notice the description goes on. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And from there, Eden, it divided and became four rivers. So, so powerful and potential was the water in Eden that outside of Eden in the larger area, it becomes four rivers, uh, two of which we're quite familiar with, Tigris and Euphrates. But Moses names all four. The Pishon, it flows around the land of Havilah. There is gold. The gold that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. He will go on to describe uh, the next three rivers. The Gihon, it flows around the land of Cush. The name of the third is Tigris. The fourth is Euphrates. So after he has spent, what, seven, eight verses describing this rich, fertile area, 
He then takes the man, places him into the Garden of Eden to do two things, to cultivate it and to keep it, to work it, okay? To prune, to make sure that the harvest was full, that the, that the orchard was uh, well endowed with plants, to take care of it. Notice, work is not a result of the fall. Hard work is the result of the fall. Work has always been our duty. Mankind was intended to work, in this case, the garden, to keep and cultivate it. But I want to make sure that we see this is a big place. This task is large, even for a magnificent being like Adam. This is a large and lavish provision. The Lord God will then command, and here's our command, which will be our focal point. The Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden, you may eat freely. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. I think there's a pattern here that will reveal three components of this command. Notice the Lord God commanded the man saying first, and notice what he does. He reminds the man of what Adam already knew, that I, God, have provided for you lavishly. I find it fascinating that when God issues a command... The first time he has a chance to, in the Bible, if you will, he tells us what we can do instead of focusing on that which we cannot do. He's going to get to what we cannot do later, but he starts with the provision of what we can do and what we've been asked to do in this richly fertile area that God has planted that we are to manage. It really becomes an interesting um, synopsis of the whole word of God, that as as vice regents, we are to manage this planet under God's care. But notice, he is the planter of the garden. He is the provider for us, and that provision is lavish, and that's captured in these words quite beautifully. From any tree of the garden, you may eat freely. There are two words that I want to draw your attention to that I think help make God's point here. Any and freely. Those are just lavish terms, are they not? From any tree. Now, if you're in the backyard and you've got four tomato plants, of which two are probably dying, that doesn't appear to be all that lavish of a provision. But if you can change now to an orchard in Florida or California that's all sorts of fruit trees that just go on and on and on and on, any of these trees, Adam, you may eat freely. Even in the command, he reminds him of what he has described uh, in the previous verses as such a lavish provision. And then and only then does God begin to prohibit. I think at times we see God as a rule keeper. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. But what he does biblically first and foremostly, he says, here's what you can do. Any tree, eat freely. But... From the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. He reserves the right to prohibit. Okay, he's the commander. He's God. And he could have just come out immediately saying, don't do this, don't do that, don't do that. But he doesn't do it that way. He lets us know what we can do. And then and only then does he prohibit. It makes the prohibition a little bit more reasonable, right? Okay, all these trees, just one? Sounds like a fair deal to me. And I think graciously God also provides a penalty phase that is strong and clear. As if to deter us from not even thinking about going outside of our boundaries, 
He lets us know in very strong language, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. There are three components, three aspects that form this pattern that I think are worth some discussion as we spend some time together this morning. All from these two little verses that God is a lavish provider. He is a prohibitor, but reasonable and small. And it is gracious of him to give us a strong penalty and to remind us that he reserves the right to discipline if he sees fit. Let me illustrate this by uh, uh, telling you guys a secret. Next, uh, next year, my wife and I are going to be married 30 years. And uh, she doesn't know it. I think she's here, but she's probably not listening to me anyway. That would not be unusual. And we're, we're gonna, I'm going to rent out Kyle Field next year. Okay? Here's the deal. All the field. All the stands, all the boxes, zone club, press box, locker room, come on the field. You can kick footballs if you want to. You can go up in the press boxes, lady. You can go into the zone club, all the food, all the drink that you want. But I got to do a little speech about halfway through the party. And I'm thinking about inviting 75, 85, maybe 90,000 of our closest friends to come in and enjoy this time together. And I'm going to reserve just two seats in which I need to give a little speech. And she's going to sit there and I'm going to do a little thing. And I've asked a couple of big football players with real tight shirts and muscles to come to make sure that nobody sits there. Now, everything I told you is a lie other than next year is our 30th wedding anniversary. But it helps illustrate the point that if you got that invitation, and believe me, I don't have 90,000 close friends, so I need you to come. You're going to go, that's a fair invite. I can go anywhere I want. Bob's going, I can kick a field goal if I want to. Bob, you can kick a field goal if you want to. You can go on the field, enjoy yourself, all that you want. Just don't sit in these two seats. And if you do, we're going to have to ask you to move. Is that not fair? Is that a reasonable invite? Now take that back to the garden just to give us some sense of the ridiculously lavish provision that God has allowed for Adam. And thus the reasonably small prohibition as this passage unfolds and of course his right to penalize. Now God had then goes on to, to work on the man a bit after he told him here's this lavish place for you to work. And he says, by the way, it's so big for you, you can't do it alone. I'm going to give you a helper who is designed just like you to accomplish the task because you alone are incomplete to the magnitude of this task. That's the reason for this very powerful term in the Bible, the word helper. Elsewhere, it's translated azer. It's the idea of a completer, a true partner, one who comes along and provides significant assistance toward now a common goal. These two me's, Adam and Eve, will become a we in this thing that the Bible calls one flesh. And it's quite beautiful. The scripture goes on to say after Eve is presented that she is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. The Bible says they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. That's how Genesis 2 ends. That's the last verse in that particular chapter. It is a beautiful picture of, of a perfect unity designed to keep God's command, completely in harmony with God, completely in harmony with with each other. It is the beautiful, blissful scene that exists at the end of Genesis 2, and it is for what we were designed. And so I pose you this question, what could go wrong? Huh? It's so perfect, it's so beautiful, what could go wrong? Well, immediately 
you see chapter three unfold. And, and, and we see the foil come in. He's referred to as the serpent here, but he's known as the crafty one. As the scripture says, in the very next verse, after God said the man and his wife were naked and not ashamed, the very next verse reads, now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Of all the words that God could have employed through Moses, to describe who we later know to be Satan, seen here as the crafty one, the serpent. He chooses the word crafty. And we might expect the crafty one to act craftily. I went to seminary for this stuff, okay? That's the crafty one is going to act craftily. So what do crafty ones do? By the way, it's not a bad word. The word is used elsewhere in the Bible. It's found in the Proverbs. It's what Solomon says the naive and the prudent need. You need some craftiness. You need some shrewdness. It has the idea of a contemplator, an identifier of patterns, looking for an angle, we might say, a strategic thinker, perhaps. That's the idea behind crafty, and that's how he's described. And the crafty one is going to pose a question about God's word, about the first command, about Genesis 2, 16 and 17 that we just saw the three components of. But he's going to do it predictably, craftily. He's going to do it with intent to deceive. The first thing he's going to do is this couple will be standing before him. We know that, that Adam is with Eve when they eat of the fruit. So it is logical in this conversation that he is there also. Yet the serpent is going to focus not on the we, but on the me. And he could have picked Adam or Eve. He chose to talk to Eve. He addressed his conversation to Eve, trying therefore subtly to act as if they're not a couple. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat of any or from any tree of the garden. He focuses one out and says, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat of any fruit from the garden. Is that what God had said? It's not even close. It's the exact opposite. We can learn some things about the crafty one. He tends to do things exactly opposite of what God is doing. And I think with a question like this, its intent is to deceive. You can't prove mood and attitude in written literature because we do it with our voice inflection or our body uh, posture. But if someone was incredulous and wanted to pose this question, they, they, they might put their hands on their hips and put their eyes like this and go, are you telling me God has said you can't eat of any tree of the garden? That little acidity in the voice, really questioning the goodness of God, you know, not stated, but, but implied is what's up with that. That doesn't seem fair. God has said you can't eat of any tree. The classic move of the tempter, the classic move of the of the crafty one is to negate what God had said. Notice God had said that you could eat from any tree of the garden. You may freely eat reminding us of the lavish provision. The serpent one says, indeed, has God said you, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden, thus reducing the provision 
and increasing that which they can't have. I want you to imagine if there's a table in front of me and there are three objects, uh, a symbol for provision, a symbol for prohibition, and a symbol for penalty, okay? What God has done is when he brings those things out, he first put the provision symbol on the table all by itself and says, get with that, focus on that. This is my provision for you. Then and only then does he put the almost thimble-sized prohibition next to it, the symbol for what is being prohibited, and then lastly, the penalty. What the evil one does is he comes and he removes the provision off the table through a premise that he's trying to establish by asking the question that way so that the response would not be in relationship to the provision, but what's left, that which I can't do, and the penalty. You see, what's the provision is removed, I view God differently. If I can get you to not focus upon the things of what God has provided for us, then I will overly focus on the things in which I cannot do and the penalties that come from that. Think about the provisions of God that we've seen biblically as the pattern unfolds. Ephesians 1.3, we're blessed with every spiritual blessing. 2 Peter 1.3, we've been given everything pertaining to life and godliness. Colossians 2.10, we are complete in him. God is such a lavish provider. So for every human being on the planet, he sent his son to die for their sin, past, present, and future. Everything he does in provision is lavish. It is over the top. Yet if I can remove that and take that out of the formula, all that's left to focus on is what I can't do and the penalty for, it, for that. And all of a sudden, I view God differently. That's the tactic of the tempter. He, he removes God's gracious provision for his creature so that we don't focus upon it by negating the lavish provision and causing us to refocus our attention to what now appears to be an unfair prohibition. Are you with me? You see how the pattern's sort of going and how the tactic of the crafty one unfolds? Now, Eve is going to respond to the serpent. So I want to compare what God had said to Adam in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, to what Eve is going to say he said, as she will describe that in Genesis 3, 2 and 3. Now, ladies, I'm not picking on you at all. I'm not picking on Eve. She's just the only one who speaks in this chapter. Adam, buttoned up, doesn't say a word. Yet we know that he is right there with her, for the Bible will say, and she took and ate of the fruit and gave to her husband with her and he ate. They are entertaining a conversation with a snake. I realize that's a little unusual, but that's what's going on. And yet they're singular. They're not together. They should have addressed the serpent together. She should have asked for her husband's help. Her husband should have stepped in, but that's not what happened. And what we see in principle form in this real story, obviously, is that together Man and woman is strong. Singularly, even acting as singles, we're not. Now, the Word of God describes in Genesis 2 that God wishes to basically rule over the planet through a married couple. There are exceptions to that later as the Scripture unfolds. He's focusing now on the wonder of marriage and calling that one flesh. 
And for those that that can live what Paul would call the exceptional life, God himself becomes the mate of that male or female, if you will, and provides that strong union. So that even in that scenario, we can't act as independent agents. We must be independents with one another and, and realize that we are strongest as a we and not me's. And so Eve is going to respond to him and she's going to do what lawyers and debate students will call, she accepted the premise of the question. The serpent's question was, has God said you can't eat of any tree of the garden? And she accepted the premise, the negative tone of that verse described when he uses the word not. Instead of saying, no, that's not what he said, she accepts the premise and goes that way with him and will begin to recall what God had said, which she obviously would have had to learn from her husband, for only Adam was there when God gave that command. But Eve is going to control the data. She knows what God had said. She's going to know the location of the tree. She's going to know generally what God has said, but it's not going to be precise. And I think that's noteworthy. God had said from any tree you can eat freely. Eve is going to change that ever so slightly, I think, reducing the provision somewhat. Remember, I ask you to focus on the concept of any and freely. Eve is going to leave those alone. So as a prototypical human being, not a male-female thing, but as a prototype for the, for the human race, Eve is showing us that if we don't correctly and lavishly view the provision, that might come out in our speech, and that might thus come out in how we behave. She is going to say from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. Doesn't describe how many there are and doesn't use the adverb freely. Let's keep going. God had said from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. The prohibition small. Now, now Eve didn't do all that good in her scripture memory at this particular point. Because what she says next is, 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 we're going to have to spend a little time unlocking this, Okay. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it. It's, it's like she's going, what, what's that? where's that verse? What's it say? And she kind of gets a little of it and then she drops in a few more. We knew that the tree was in the middle of the garden, but that was before the command. That was before God had commanded Adam. She feels the necessity to, to let the serpent know that it's in the middle of the garden. Notice she doesn't name the tree. God had said, from the, knowledge, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat. She just calls it the tree and rather moves to where it's located. As if that tree is something I don't know what I'm to do with right now. And the most clear is she's going to add to God's word. She's going to say, not only can we not eat of it, we can't touch it. God had not said they couldn't touch it. They, they could have you know, play catch with the fruit. They could have carved their initials in the tree, all this sort of stuff. She's adding to what God's word had said. She's our first legalist. She's coming up with rules outside of what God had said. Yes, maybe to prevent falling into sin, but her lack of clarity, I think is noteworthy as she speaks for all humanity and teaches us today that the precision and handling accurately the word of God is important. She, in essence, will increase that which she cannot do. And lastly, God had said 13 words in English, seven words in Hebrew, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Strong and clear penalty. She's going to reduce that to three words in English and one word in Hebrew. Almost a, we'll die. 
as opposed to that much more strong statement, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die, giving it a firm and strong warning. She tends to minimize that and perhaps weaken that penalty phase. So the model looks like this that we've just sort of gone through. What we've seen in what God's about, he's a lavish provider. In light of that lavish provision, he reserves the right to prohibit, but it's small, it's reasonable. And graciously, he gives us a penalty if we are to deter from the path. Eve, prototype of humanity who's not obeying the word of God, these can be the paths in which we can follow if we're not careful. We might be men and women who reduce the provision, who are perfectly fine with the provision being moved off the table. I want to focus on what I can't do. And what's up with God telling me he's going to be this harsh? You see, all three are meant to be together, and then the picture is more in balance. It's more proportional. Maybe we're men and women who increase the prohibition. We'll only focus on that which we can't do. Or maybe we're penalty phase softeners. We don't talk about such things, she might say. And as a result, Eve is going to involve herself in all three and teaches us as a human race what the human being is like when it doesn't follow the clear pattern of God's command of provision, prohibition, and penalty. So I want you to think about, as we spend just the next five minutes or so, thinking about some areas of our life and how these principles might come into play. We've seen the ways of God. He's a lavish provider. He is one who is so lavish in his provision. It takes up six, seven verses just in Genesis 2. Let alone we see the pattern throughout the word of God that he tells us who we are and what we can do before he tells us what we can't do. I love the, the, the juxtaposition of, of Paul's use of the word pursue and flee. He'll say pursue righteousness and flee immorality. See, he tells us what we can pursue, not just what we cannot do. Okay, that rhymed, didn't it? He tells us what we can pursue and not just negates things. Alone, he appears to be an ogre, just a negator, just a bunch of rules. A pursuer, a provider is more in, in tune with what he is. He's lavish in that. And thus his prohibition and his penalty is understandable and reasonable. Now, how am I doing in that relationship? Do I fully appreciate his lavish provision? Can I identify it in all sorts of ways? Too often we'll think of just money in a deal like that. Well, Lord, I could use a little bit more money. But his provision goes far beyond that. Blessed with every spiritual blessing. Everything we've been given pertaining to life and godliness. Complete in him. Lacking no thing. That's the God that we serve. That's the God of this book. Over and abundant in his provision. Am I an appreciator of that? Or do I get my attention off of that or kind of go, yeah, yeah, I got it. Let's get to the stuff I can't do and overly focus on that and sort of stew a bit. Why can't I do that? And of course, the answer is because we were made with boundaries, not because God is an ogre, because we're made to work and have our being and fit within those boundaries. And outside of those boundaries is also not good for us. And it also demonstrates a lack of care for the person of God and his right to command us. An over-focus upon that which we can't do is a first an indication that we're not spending enough time in the provision, in my opinion. 
And, and secondly, it might be a questioning of God's goodness. Is he fair? Has God said you can't eat of any tree? That's how I would lead you astray. To the Kyle Field illustration, I would, uh, some guy might come next to you and say, what's up with this buck guy that invites me to the party and says I can't sit in these two seats? Somebody else comes over and says, you know what he said? We couldn't even touch him either. I hadn't said that. Any seat but that. It's reasonable. It's fair. Do I soften his discipline? Do I make a theological error and conclude that I've, because I've got a verse over here that says God is love, that that sort of covers everything and all the rest of the word of God sort of has to come under that. Well, a God of love would never discipline. He would never bring about a, a judgment upon me that would teach me not to stray from the shepherd again. That's not the word of God. That's not the God of the word. He is a God who provides, prohibits, and disciplines according to his intent. And do I know the word precisely so I can obey it carefully and correctly? Paul writes to Timothy in his last letter. He says, be diligent to show yourself approved as a workman. I love that verse. A workman who needs not to be ashamed one who can handle accurately the word of truth. Eve serving as a prototype for humanity, at best paraphrased, had a few things, but it was not precise. And thus the deviations that we saw can occur. It is indeed a place uh, that, that all of us need work in, but the precision of the word of God. Think of Jesus when he was tempted in Matthew 4. Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God is how he chose to deal with these temptations. He dealt with each temptation with a verse, correctly, properly, exactly what God had said. He had hidden it in his heart, and he knew how to ward off those attacks, those arrows of the, of the enemy with the word of God, the thing strong enough to defeat it. Also, these principles actually extend far greater than just our individual walks with the Lord. These principles of provision, prohibition, and penalty work everywhere. In our home life, with our spouses, with our, with our children. Are, are, are we, guys, are we lavish in our provision for our wives? I don't, don't mean are we bringing home a lot of bread. Are we lavish with ourselves and our ideas and our time and our thoughts with her and vice versa? And ladies, are you lavish in your, the provision of your azerness, your helpmateness, so that that formation of that one flesh is strong and will not be torn apart? Are you acting as a unit or just a couple of free agents with our children? The importance of being lavish providers for them and their spiritual health and opportunity to talk with them about a variety of things, be there and available to them, and at work. I use these principles at work all the time. I, I, I'm like the man in, in, John, in Matthew 8. I, too, am a man of authority. I am told what to do, and I tell others what to do. I understand that world. And so I want to be lavishly provided for by th- those that tell me what to do so that I can do my job. And I want to provide lavishly for th- those that have been decided to work with me and make sure that they have the resources needed to accomplish their task. And then, of course, the right in all those relationships uh, to prohibit lavishness in all three arenas, the right to prohibit in all three arenas, and the penalties that should be stated are clear and strong. 
In about 1992, uh, all of this really came together for me around this thing that I call the spanking spoon. Now, our kids certain that an implement like this was an element of capital punishment and probably would be the end of their very life. In fact, we probably only used it three or four times, as I can recall. They would get all scared and call it the pankin-poon. They couldn't say their S as well. Daddy, daddy, not the pankin-poon. And and usually all I had to do was just kind of hold up the pankin-poon, which one of them's here now at 23 or whatever. You probably don't think this is all that. How old are you, honey? 24, sorry. Uh, It'll get away from you. See, I've not had lavish provision of my time with her. It's probably not quite as scary to her as it was when she was about this age. But one of her sisters, who's not here today, had trouble staying in her room when it came time for naps. Okay? Now, we had the classic deal. The kids were young. They literally took naps. They needed the naps. And it was no problem getting to go to sleep. But as they aged a bit, they, uh, you know, sometimes wouldn't fall asleep. But our rule was, we want to teach our kids that you need to be able to be by yourself. You need to be quiet. You need to entertain yourself. And I don't remember what it was, maybe an hour and a half, two hours in the afternoon, they would go to their room. And the rule was, we'll come get you when the time is over. And in that room, you're free to do whatever you want. You can read, you can color, you can listen to your We Sing tapes, you can do all sorts of little things that you want, but stay in your room. Don't come out of your room or daddy will have to go get the pank and poon, okay? Usually you didn't even have to say the last part. It was pretty clear. Well, this particular one had a little wild hair and she would just come out after about 10 minutes and just walk into where Val and I were and say, hi, mommy, hi, daddy. And hello, sweetie, what's going on? She says, well, I just want to see how you were. Well, actually, thank you, dear. We're fine. Let me, let me walk you back to your room. And now here's the deal, sweetie. I want you to stay in your room. You can do anything in your room. I suggest you take a nap, but you can do anything that you want. But stay in your room or we're going to have to meet the spanking spoon. Okay, 10 minutes later, comes out. I just wanted some water. Okay, honey, you already had some water in your room. Thanks for telling us that you were thirsty. But at this moment, we need you to stay in your room. It's been provided for you all that you wish. Last time she comes out and says, I don't want the door closed. I said, okay, look, this is the last time. We're walking back in this room and I'm going to tell you, this room is for you. It's got a lavish provision of all the things that you need as a four-year-old, okay? You need no more things that are in here. Don't come out of the room. I opened the door and said, the door will be open. For the rule was not to, not to open the door. The rule was not to go outside the boundary of the room. And I got the spanking spoon, and I simply laid it on the threshold of the door <laughs> such that if she walked over it, she was picking up, in essence, the element of the capital punishment that she so feared. Worked perfectly. Never saw that kid again. She may still be in her room. I'm not sure what's going on. But, and I didn't know it at the time. You know, you kind of learn things. We learn haphazardly and stuff. But as I thought about this passage more and, and, and studied Genesis more and, and those elemental teachings of life that are so bound up, bound up in the book of, of Genesis, it just came together that that's what God was teaching her, teaching me, teaching Val about how to work within our home. Provide lavishly. It's okay to prohibit once the establishment of the provision has been so, so made known. And to use the penalty phase to move people either away from sin or back into relationship with God. So I hope this little passage has been refreshing to us as we think about what I call the first command. 
that God desires to lavishly provide for us, does so abundantly, also reserves the right to prohibit and to bring forth discipline according to his ways. Would you pray with me? Lord, thanks so much for these men and women in our time together. Thanks so much for this little passage, the, the beauty of, of just a couple of verses and, and the richness that we can derive from them. Thank you for each one here, Lord. I pray that you might give us time outside this place to think about these things, to search the scriptures to see if in fact they are so. And if they are, Lord, will you give us opportunity to incorporate them in our own personal walk with you, our own understanding of you? Maybe we're, we're, we're lopsided and not complete in our view of you. Help us see you fully and completely in our relationships at home, with our friends, at work. May we incorporate the principles of provision and prohibition and penalty in such a way that we become Christ-like. For it's in the magnificent name of the Lord Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Next week, uh, I think Kevin will be with you, but we'll have one more time away from Romans. uh, And continue, please, to pray for the, the trip that's in Israel, Brian, and about 30 or 40 others. Okay? Thank you.